Hi, welcome to Train Rush, your Toxic 4 train game podcast, brought to you by your hosts, Cray Taylor and Dave Moss. So Dave, how are you? I'm not doing too bad, mate. How are you doing? Yep, not so bad. A little bit under the weather, which will affect my voice somewhat this uh, episode. If you hear any squawking, it's not my pet parrot. It is in fact me. So listeners, please forgive me. I'm going to change the format of the show just arbitrarily, Dave, because I can. On the fly. On the fly, yeah. Not because of any feedback from people in a Slack group or anything like that. No, no, no. Just because I want to. So, Dave, have we played any games over the last couple of weeks? Always. We always play games. I guess recently we played quite a bit of 18GB. You managed to play it twice in a weekend, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I've played it twice in a weekend and twice in the following week. So I've played it, I think, about five times over the last three weeks. And I've had a couple of plays as well, so spoiler alert, I think there may be an episode in the pipeline. There will be as soon as your thoughts are coagulated, Dave. I've got to a stage where maybe I'd like to see a play at five or three to kind of round out my view on it, but I've kind of got a feeling of what I like and what I I don't like, can I say, don't like anymore about it, and would be keen to talk about it. Yeah, I think one more play and we'll be good to go. So um, let's kind of hopefully get that one lined up soon. We also managed to play 1858 Railways of Iberia this last week. Yeah, less said about that one the better, Dave, actually. I I wasn't in a receptive mode for a game that had that much upfront decision-making. There's a lot of auctions at the start of that game and the implications of the privates you win are significant. And in retrospect, maybe not one I should have played when I had a headache. And, and I think ultimately, first playthrough, you know, we need to go through a few more times before it's anywhere near being discussed on a podcast other than the comments we've just made. Yeah. Um, so we'll, 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 we'll keep playing away at that one and, and going through it. We've done a little bit of Cube Rails fun as well, I think. So we played, well, uh, it's not really Cube Rails, but Northern Pacific. Well, you've played Northern Pacific, Dave. So Have you I'm, not played it? No, I'm here with bated breath, living vicariously through you. So you tell me how wonderful the thing I haven't played is yet. I liked it. It's interesting. I wouldn't. I would strongly suggest it's not Cube Rails, although it may have been banished as it. It's it's quite abstracted. I don't want to say too much because I think it's got potential for us to have a future online discussion about it. But, um, we'll get some plays in. Don't be coy, Dave. Did you enjoy it? Yes. Yeah. I I, I did. I liked it. <laughs> Find me a game I don't like. Actually, let's not do that. That will be here a long time. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. So no one needs to listen to the Northern Pacific episode that comes up, guys. Dave likes it. That's all we'll be saying. Just for 25 minutes, Dave liked it, Dave liked it, Dave liked it. That, that's like most episodes, I think, isn't it? And aside from, from the game we're about to talk about in more detail in a minute, we've also been playing Norgenbahnen. Well, I'm, I'll leave you to pronounce that, Dave. I've already got that wrong when I'm typing it out with all the time in the world. There's no way you're going to get me to commit to it to saying it on tape. So Bananarama was made by myself physically, but designed by Martin Bossel, and it's is a cube rails game with a twist i would say yeah i think it's it's a cube rails game with some really interesting influences you can see some some euro gamey type things in there hans de tonka is the one i was thinking I, I was thinking about it afterwards about the dropping the cubes and laying them along predefined routes and then lifting them for benefit it screams hansa yeah that's a really interesting analogy that i hadn't thought about absolutely i mean long and short of that is i i, I liked the, the one play i've had i definitely want to play it more and we should play it more and talk about it to these good people that listen to us soon it's definitely interesting it dave and the thing i would say okay, uh, the thing i would say i'm going to try and say the thing i would say less what i would like to say specifically about this title is although it's in development i 
had a very rich game experience with it. It doesn't feel like it's got that much development left to go. The only thing I would say is we are obviously narrowing down on a truer and truer set of rules as we go. Yeah, I think there's still a few things that need to be ironed, but there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. It's very playable and very enjoyable. So um, we'll pick that one up in future. Well, as soon as we're able to authoritatively say we've played the actual version, right, a few times, then we'll offer some analysis on it. But like I say, if you have access to Martin, he is, um, by request, he's releasing the uh, files. So ping him an email if you're genuinely interested in giving it a try yourself. Definitely, it's, it's recommended. So in the meantime, on to today's fun. Craig, tell us what we're going to talk about. Well, we'll talk about a line named Sue, perhaps. The Sue line, brought to you by the publisher Hollenspiel, from the brain of Tom Russell. Put to life in pen and ink by Ilya Kudryshov. It is um, available to you in the US, direct from Hollenspiel, and in the UK, because I know some of you fellow Brits listen to this, from Second Chance Games. Prices may vary depending on your continent. Yeah, I mean, it, it, Holland Spiel operates an interesting model. It's it's print on demand. They've had a, a lot of trouble, I think, shipping things internationally. So it was very interesting when just before Christmas or just after Christmas, just after, just after, sorry, they they uh, announced a hookup with Second Chance, who also do a lot of importing for GMT into the UK and Europe, whilst we're still a member of it. Definitely an opportunity for us to get the games easier than it potentially is if you're ordering them from the US. I know we've taken advantage sometimes of my work travels to make sure we pick things up from from lots of the US companies. But any way of getting them here is much much easier and much better for us. I guess really, listeners, you can make that comparison for yourself, right? The price point has, has changed a touch. But on the flip side, there's no nasty uh, surprise bills from Her Majesty's Customs Inspectorates or um, stuff getting lost in the post and having to deal with that hassle internationally. So, you know... Take your lumps there, I guess. So let's go into the actual detail of the game, Dave. Do you want to tell me a bit about the Sulon? Sure. So it's a cube browse game uh, from Tom Russell. It'll be, it's, it's very familiar, I think, to anyone who's potentially played an 18xx. You, you have an initial auction for mines. Mines function similarly to privates in 18xx. And then the game's played out across a number of operating rounds for railway companies and um, share rounds. So so far, so 18xx, really? Yeah, I was going to say that structurally, in the broadest brushstrokes, it plays out like 18xx. The difference is in the, in the implementation of the various types of rounds. You know, the auction is very unique. The operating rounds, you're operating in a cube rails-esque type way that you'll go into detail about, Dave. And the share round is in itself unique. Yeah, absolutely. So so before we dive into the auction, let's just talk about the things you're going to get in that auction initially. So as I said, there's a bunch of privates, uh, mines, and each of them has a value. It pays that value out every round to the owner of the mine, depending on where they've been, been set in the turn order of the auction. That depends on the number of goods cubes they get put on them. And, and there is a little bit of a pick up and deliver element to this game. And the mines have cubes on and you'll deliver them throughout the game. And as that happens... The company and the owner of the mine will make money, and then in turn, when the mine closes, there'll be a small payoff to the owner. Yeah, I think you've probably short-sold the uh, implications of the pick-up and deliver in this. I think the pick-up and deliver is a significant part of this game. Sure, but we'll, we'll talk we'll, about we'll, it in we'll more detail later. We'll and then alongside those mines, uh, you also auction the uh, initial, or potentially president's share, of the uh, of the three railroads. There are three railroads in the game. 
the blue, the red, and the yellow. Uh, the blue is the Sioux line. I think the red is is the Mississippi, South Mississippi, and there's a Duluth one somewhere. Um, I can't remember the exact name, so I'll apologise on that front. The cheese heads are going to be coming for us, Dave. Yeah, I know, uh, but it's um, there are three three uh, lions that are historically in that region, um, and um, yeah, you're, you're basically the auction. Whoever has the priority deal must put the top thing up for auction as a minimum bid of five, or if they've got less than five, or however much cash they've got available. It's then a once-round-the-table auction, and when it gets back to the priority deal, the initial bidder, the auctioneer, for example, then they have a choice of matching the highest bid to take the goods. Yes, and the implications, if they decide to match the highest bid, then they lose priority to whoever they outbid. If they choose to let the item pass, then the priority will move on to whoever was the most recently outbid. In the setting where nobody is outbid, so just the auctioneer bids and everybody else goes around, then priority moves on to them. And I think that's quite interesting. Uh, At least one or two of our plays through, there were people whose natural turn order to put something up for auction was bypassed due to the way priority deal shifts around which was quite an interesting challenge Mm, it definitely it feels like turn order and priority is something you subvert in this it's definitely something you manipulate and finagle the um seating order matters in terms of whether you are the auctioneer for something you don't want and thereby have to bid irrespective of whether you want the darn thing or not which can be crippling it can be uh significant especially if what you're bidding on doesn't pair with the privates that you had eyed up maybe you need to change your plan and the fact that the things are put in a random order, maybe the train company certificates will come up first, maybe the high-value privates come up early and um, the low ones late, that randomization does provide a decent degree of variable setup. Very much so. I think, I think there's a lot of depth in at that point. And, and one of the other things that I just want to touch on around that auction is, is where does the money go? You know, that's an interesting point, really. So for all the mines, the money goes into the treasury of the red company. Um, mm. So it, it can potentially generate a lot of money. Uh, for the president's shares, obviously those go into the treasuries of the respective companies, and obviously the red also has a president's share, so that will generate money. Whatever you bid, uh, it's rounded down to the nearest value on the stock market, and then it is matched by the bank. So they can start with, with a varying degree of money. Yeah, that stock market, just before everybody gets too excited, is linear. It's just a straight forward and back stock market. There's movement on it, but there's no funky up-down, left-right shenanigans. Well, there's just left-right shenanigans. Okay, so that's the that's auction. Oh, but let's not go into deep dive on the analysis on it, Dave. I think we've covered it in enough strokes that people realise that there's a fair amount of gain to it. It's not just your mom and pop's auction. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll recap it as we do some of our, our closing thoughts. So then the game plays out with a number of operating rounds for the big railway companies uh, and share rounds. And that continues until one of the clocks on the game is reached. That's either a, a company hitting the maximum stock price of $80, that's either all three railroads being out of cubes to place on the board or it's the mine deliveries track. So every time you make a delivery, a cube goes onto a chart. Um, as soon as that chart is full, the game ends. Sure. In real world terms, I'd argue there's only one game end condition, which is the delivery track. Well, I don't see all three companies ever running out of cubes, although I guess situation is possible. And you would argue, Dave, that the stock market top level is possible but you'd have to definitely collude to work towards it maybe i I think we still something get up to around about the 60 so two or three steps away from the top step on the stock market but yeah i think 
the cube clock is is almost certainly never going to come into play. There is a varying amount of cubes per railroad. Uh, we've seen two of the railroads run out of cubes in a couple of our games, but the um, the, the the other railroad then has very very much control over the rest of the game. Sure, that's the yellow railroad that has the most cubes. Interestingly, the company that gets the most upfront money, the red one that gets the money from the privates, has the fewest cubes. So although it has the capacity to deploy lots of cubes, it's going to run out of them. It feels like that was a, a conscious design decision. and it's, it's a very interesting constraint, I think, as we go through with that. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more detail about uh, a share round first. Let's talk about how a share round happens. So that's a, a once round the table action. Uh, your choices are simple. You either buy a share at the available price, assuming a share is available in a company. Note, if you buy a share, the stock value immediately increases. So that's very good for your investment uh, and potentially can limit, obviously, other players' ability to invest in those companies. Or you can pass. If you pass, you take $5. Uh, first player to um, first player to pass receives the uh, the priority deal. Yeah, rip down pretty quick, the stock rounds. I would say the interaction point of driving the price up when you buy things quite interesting. It feels like the lion's share of decision-making there is around, again, seating order and subverting it by choosing to pass for priority or taking advantage of it when you can drive the price up on something somebody else wants, even if you don't necessarily truly want it. The thing that's missing for me is that expectation that you can sell stock. You can't. It's one-way traffic. Once you invest in a thing, you have a thing. See, see, I, I don't miss that, but I think, yeah, absolutely, there's a, a, there's a timing element to when you buy stuff, and I think that's, again, a, a critical undercurrent of the game because of the impact of you buying things, not just in terms of increment of stock price, but as we'll explore shortly, again, by having having investment in a company, um, that can impact some of the behaviour it does later on. Sure. Um, For the record, I don't miss, the, I don't feel like it would be a better game with with share sales. It's just... It's weird playing a game that feels like 18xx and is structured like 18xx and then you can't sell stock. It feels unnatural within the context of so many familiar things that you're working with. Totally. Uh, and so I guess at that point we should probably talk about an operating round. So, so the company's operating a fixed order, blue, red, yellow. The first thing they must do is if they're connected to one of those mines uh, and also have a connection to a, an urban hex that has deliveries. So there are two types of urban hexes on the board. The urban hex that takes delivery has a slight red border outside of it. If they are connected to those, they must deliver a cube, assuming the mine has one. If they're connected to multiple mines and multiple delivery centres, then they can make multiple deliveries. Um, May. May. So the first one's mandatory. They get to pick which amongst the many, if they have many. Any further are optional. I don't... there's, There's some plays where you might not do the further ones. But by and large, you're probably going to do as many as you can. Well, I guess it depends on who. It, it, it depends, depends on, on who owns the mine. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Well. Yeah. But um, but yes, and and obviously again, by making a delivery, that also increments the stock price of a company as well. So so far, so good for all your stock holdings. These are going up a lot through the course of the game. Then the company must lay rails. There's a terrain cost, no matter what type of terrain you're hitting, whether it's a standard, straightforward, urban, or, or normal grassy hex as i want to call it savannah i played dominant species last night Dave. let's <laughs> call them savannah hexes the savannas of michigan and and then you've obviously got uh some mountains in one corner of the board or hills maybe um obviously there's more terrain across that um you can lease a hex so so any of the normal hexes the mountains and the savannah hexes can only own one cube in them all of the urbanized hexes can own one cube of each color so to connect to some of them you may have to lease rails from uh, you know from a fellow 
uh, train company. And I think that, you know, that kind of thing has been seen in, in Tom Russell's Iberian Gage in his Winsome release. I think it's in, in Irish Gage as well. I might be wrong there. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it, it, it's his, a cube rails trait that you can see. Yeah, it's in his Gage games, definitely. Um, so you lease by paying half of the cost. Um, and obviously that allows you to make further and, and more extended connections as you go forwards. If you build in any of the urban hexes, uh, they increase the uh, revenue amount that the company pays. If you build in any of the delivery urban hexes, then that increases the revenue amount by two steps. And then, so after you've laid rails, you decide whether you're going to pay dividend or not. If you pay a dividend, you pay the amount of the earnings, the revenue per share that's held amongst the players. Or if you withhold, you take 10 times that amount and put that into the company treasury, and your share price drops by the number of shares that are held by players. Yeah, so to clarify, if there were three shares on the table and Dave's company, Dave's big red company withholds, then it would go backwards three slots on the stock market. So that's that interesting point of interaction during the stock round where you might buy shares that you're not interested in for what they're earning, but to limit another player's options operationally. Yeah, and I think the other other interesting point to note there is if a company hasn't laid rails in the in the operating round and note if it has run out of cubes, it cannot lay rails, then they must withhold. It's sure. forced to withhold. Which is interesting because we've seen some failed timing games where a player puts all the cubes out for red. Red's earned, got again decent revenue because its earnings have gone up through various activities. And then, oh, I have to withhold. And the share price just plummets. Everybody may have bought into these shares, these red shares. And as such, when it goes backwards, it goes backwards fast and everybody's um, assets just turn to dust. And I think I think there's that natural instinct, that naivety in the first few plays through of, of looking at red and going, it's got a lot of cash, it's got good roots, it starts with a lot of cubes on the board, I'll invest in that. And as you say, then the clock of the timing on it can can harm those investments of players. Well, my, my last two plays of this game have changed my view on the right way to play red. I used to think red, because it starts with all that cash, is a big bully, but actually red can, if it lets the other players spread across the board, it can lease lines instead of building them itself. And all that time, it can just take cheeky dividends and, and make the player who owns the most shares in it tons of money. Yeah, I, I, I don't think red's set up to stomp across the game. I think red should be... Uh, well, Reds in a very—they're all in very interesting positions. Again, the geography of the board—I know that's a, a favourite topic of mine—puts them in some interesting places. Yellow has some benefits, particularly if it can reach one corner of the board, it gets some free rails on the board. Blue starts away away from anything. It's hard to get those free rails, Dave. Right? I mean, now you say it's the corner of the board with the mountains. It's the half of the board with the mountains, and to get across to your free rails, you have paid through the nose to cut across those mountains to get there. It feels like a teamwork proposition where really you want to be trying to lease across part of those mountains. Ma- yeah, you'd, you'd like red to help you absolutely as part of that, I think. And and then as I say, blue starts right at the other end of the board away from everything. Blue looks really difficult to make it work at the start. Blue's horrendous as far as I can see at the moment. I mean, I would, just to be clear, this episode is very much early impressions. This is a grower, this game, but... Right now, my view on blue is emerging, and but it started from a position of this looks pants. See, see, I I disagree. I I, I think blue is really interesting conundrum in it because I think it looks awful, and dep- and I, I, we we've seen this I think in the last two plays we've had. You can par it at very different prices, but still have degrees of success with it. So I parred it quite high. I think I put 
$20 in, which allowed me to start building track, connecting to those urban hexes, um, withholding, because I was only the share, the only shareholder. Everyone's looking at it going, I don't want any of that cake. And so I'm obviously withholding, having minimal impact on the share value, but continuing to keep revenue mm. going to the company and build it across the board. And actually that one, that game, it ended up being the highest paying share at about $60, $64 at the end of the game. I think it's joint highest if memory serves. But the, my point here is, right, if you par it lower, when you do those withholds, there's a, there's a minimum value on the stock market. So if I par it lower and just do the withholds anyway, I've lost no money and I can put the other money that I've saved from that onto more profitable things on the stock market, specifically the privates. I run it the other way. I run it on fumes and eventually those withholds will give it enough money to get somewhere. The extra two line, the extra two cubes I can pay for it to drop ain't going to make that much difference. No, but I think, you know, it was interesting. Lindsay did that on our last pay through and, and she, you know, she parred it very low. I think she put it up at through five, nobody outbid her. So it, it didn't have very much money to start with. It had a very slow take, but again, nobody was buying into it. Nobody's interacting with it. And actually, it can come good in the the end of the game. And you almost want in that situation, blue and red maybe need to, uh, not blue and red, sorry, red and yellow, apologies, need to push the clock on the game then at that point. Whereas in that game, where yellow sat back and, and didn't push the clock at all. So I think there's a really interesting dynamic. Each company has different ways to play, different strengths, and that can be very variable every time you play it. There's definitely a degree of asymmetry in the companies. Red having the fewer cubes but the most money, yellow having some unique geography opportunities and blue just being rubbish no sorry blue being in the boonies and having to fight its way across the board blue setup i don't think it doesn't really matter how you play blue your first four or five turns maybe three or four you're going to be withholding like bilio almost certainly but i think it's it's interesting because if red goes towards blue rather than towards yellow for what reason though Sorry, on the map, so to be clear, sorry, I'm cutting across Dave here and it's a bit rude. We've even got ping-pong bats and I've ignored them. There's not a lot going on on Blue's side of the board to build towards, in my view. But I think if Blue and Red can work together, then they can really stifle any power that Yellow has because Yellow just has so much terrain cost to spend. So I think that it's a game of informal alliances as well as part of it. There's got to be a little bit of collusion, collaboration, whether that's explicitly stated around the table or not, I guess it depends on the group you play right. with. So but you're I, saying red should build east to subsidise blue functionally? Potentially. And and I think there was there was one situation in one game we played, I think, where it was possible that the president's share was going to end up for both of those in the... or the, the president of that company was going to be the same player. If you can get both of them, why wouldn't you get them working together? Because then yellow is really fighting against the, against the terrain challenge. Although, in all fairness, in our plays of this, we're yet to see a game where someone's the president of two companies. Yes, it's been close. I, I think it would be poor play of the players around the table. You know, there are, there are a few things you've got to watch as you go through it. You can't let a player get too much private-slash-mine income. If they, get, if they get over that, and I think it's called out in the rules, but if they get too much of that, then that's an unassailable lead. Well, yeah, there's been auctions at the end of which where we played it through for research purposes but actually you could have gone let's just reset well done you won this one dave yeah and and you know that's okay as long as we all go into the auction knowing that that's a possibility that you know we need to control the way the players work around the table we've covered the way the or runs so i guess shall we go into some analysis about the various facets 
how do you want to hit this? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of talked through a lot of my, my thoughts there, but but let's keep going. You know, give me, give me some of your thoughts. You know? Okay. I think a lot of the outcomes in this are dictated by that initial auction. I think that my current views on it are there's a ripe way, certainly inside a given group, I, I, I can definitively say this, but I, I broadly theorise there's a right way to play most of those companies you can look and say, okay, so-and-so's got those privates. They need to be closed quickly. The best position company to do that is the yellow company. The yellow company's owned by a different player. They should do that. I think so much of the way the game pans out isn't in, just informed by that opening auction. It's dictated by it. To the point where actually perverse, I'm not going to say it feels scripted, but it certainly feels supervised. I don't, I don't. I don't think it's quite at that level. I think it has a strong influence on the game. Absolutely, I don't disagree with the the, the proposition there. I think it can allow you to make some decisions afterwards. And again, your hand is forced in certain scenarios in the auction because again, you're you're forced to put stuff up to bid when you've got the priority deal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we've seen people landing things they very clearly didn't want. Take take the example I gave earlier of Lindsay getting the the Sioux line for for five dollars. You know, she didn't want it. No one else was outbidding her. So I think, you know, it has a huge impact. I don't think it, it determines the art, the result of the game unless the players let people get too too much power through as a result mm, of the auction. I just don't know. The balance of income from the privates versus the train companies seems so heavily biased towards the privates that, like you said, we we both agreed a moment ago, right? There's been games where we go, okay, so and so's got got like 17 in private income. Should we even play this one? That has happened a fair. I can probably count the amount of times where there's been a wonky allocation of the privates, and I would say it's probably happened more often than it hasn't. It's actually the exception has been the games where there's been a broadly even distribution of privates, and therefore not something to play for, but it's felt broadly balanced. So don't get me wrong. I'm not asking for a game to hold my hand. And I like meaningful asymmetry, okay? And this gives you meaningful asymmetry. I can't argue that. And I think, you know, the key thing is if a player gains a lot of power, hopefully not too much out of the auction, but if they have a what's determined to be towards the top end of that value ranking, then the railroad companies have become a defensive mechanism. The presidents of the company should be trying to build in and take the cubes out of their minds and close them down as quick as possible. So I think... You know, one of the things I think is, is is quite evident on a lot of Hollenspiel games is there's a, a, a large amount of opacity. Um, look at 4X, you know. I love 4X. Nobody had a clue what they were doing, you know, the first few times we played it at all. You're forcing me to go satellite level here because 4X was something I was going to reference. I liken this to 4X for a kind of a macro level reason. 4X is a curio I like exploring. It doesn't feel like a fully polished, fully realised game in the same way something from Asmodee might. It feels like this wonderful, glorious black box that maybe the game's broken, I don't know, but it's so opaque. I'm enjoying exploring it and unpicking this curio and doing it live. You need players who've got the patience for doing that. If they're not game for exploring a thing that may or may not be broken, inverted commas, or may or may not be obvious how to play sensibly then and you've got someone there who just wants to at the table who wants to play a polished thing you're gonna have a horrible experience yeah and I, and that's kind of exactly where i was going with it both of these get this game and, and forex massively reward repeat plays and then also repeat plays of the same groups of players sure. so i think one of the challenges we've had with sue line is 
almost every play we've had at least one new player at the table it's not the same group i think both of these games would shine if you sat down because neither of them take particularly long we've played three players with yourself myself and, and Lindsay. So we have played it with just experienced players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that was one of those those uh, plays where actually I thought Blue performed quite well because we were getting a little bit more au fait with the game and some of the quirks of There's it. There's more nuance. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm seeing more nuance as we play it more. Okay, And there's things like the clock, the red company not having as many cubes that are becoming, the impact thereof is becoming more apparent. So I'm not saying there's not something here. But unless you're the kind of person that likes exploring the weird thing, you're going to get nothing out of this. True, yeah. You've got to have an interest level. And I think the key thing is not just you as an individual having the interest level. You've got to have a group that want to sit down and play it because it will shine at its best when the same four, three, four, five people sit around a table, play it again and again and again and go, okay, I chalk that play up to experience. Something happened that was a bit weird. Uh, how do I apply that knowledge yeah. that I've learned? And can I accept the weird stuff happening, right? Some people just going to go, oh, well, that means the game's broken. It doesn't mean the game is broken, but that's what their perception is. And then they'll never revisit the thing again. For me, Forex, I define it as a 10 out of 10 game that I can never hit the table. Yeah, I would agree 100%. You know, literally the only two people that want to play that, I think, are me and you, really. Um, Jimmy, potentially. Yeah. But, um, but you know, kind of going back to Sue Line, it's, I think it's short enough as well. You know, it plays in 45 minutes anyway yes. up, really. So Fine, fine. Okay, I'm going to make a point here. It's more forgivable that it's that kind of box of widgets, let's see what we can make type game, than it is with Forex. Because with Forex, it's kind of like an hour and a half investment with fiddly counters and a map board that sprung and you need a bit of perspex to take with you to get the ideal experience and blah 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 there's a lot more investment of time to play around a forex than there is to play around of this yeah no i wouldn't disagree with that but i think with this you know you can get that quick experience and you can determine if you want to do it again but i think you know most times we've played it we, we've kind of literally racked it straight up again and played a second play it hasn't always survived to a third play i don't think that's time available, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've played this a lot more than we would an 18xx. Well, more to point in tighter windows than we would even try to play an 18xx. I really like a lot of this. I mean, I, I appreciate it sounding quite damning about the auction setting up asymmetry, more to point unassailable asymmetry, and some of the decisions feeling a bit. I, I'm loath to use the word scripted, but it's the closest word I can think of right now. It's because I actually had really high hopes for this one. I enjoy so many aspects of what it does but sometimes i come away from a game going huh, what decision did i drive there and what decisions did the game functionally shepherd me into making there was there any freedom for me to do something weird like when you play 18xx right and you get the let's say 1846 and you get the steamboat company you win that private you've got some control as okay maybe i'll go for grand trunk and go and use and get the holland bonus for the ports oh no you know what i'll do the bno bonkers steamboat strategy and i'll do that instead you've got some options as to what way you shape it with this it feels like your options are limited now admittedly the variable setup of who gets what how many cubes for each company what your auction options are will create replayability but i still don't feel like i weirdly i don't feel like i'm entirely the driver when i'm in the operating rounds See, see, I think I, I, I think there is a the control is very fluid. I think you know your decisions change a lot. This is a very reactive game. You've got to see what goes on. I, I, I'm in a slightly different position to say I really like it. I'll admit up front that I'm a fan of Tom Russell's work anyway. And 
you know, I really think this is another good game. And, and I think, you know, we're still we're still in a point where we're peeling back layers of the onion. And, and certainly the last couple of plays we've had, I'm seeing more, I'm seeing better play. I know one one group I played it with, you weren't present with me at that time, but, but you know, they were just like, I don't understand this. There's no value in things here. I don't know what I'm supposed to bid. And that's the problem, Dave, right? That's the problem. I'm starting to peel back the onion and find some interesting nuance that I'd like to see more of. But if you can't take your group with you, how are you going to do it? True, but I think I think that's why, as as we said earlier, you know, you've got to make sure you've got the right committed set of people that are going to say, "We're going to play through this, and we're going to suffer the pain, for want of a better phrase, and the weirdness and the confusion, and we'll all hopefully come out the other side better for the experience." And if we don't, well, you know, we'll just talk up to the fact we've we've yeah. had a bit of fun together. Well, let's let's frame it positively, right? As a one-off game, it's it's, it's you're not going to get the most out of it as a one-off game. It's all but a waste of time. The first time you play it, it's going to be very opaque. You're going to go, well, okay, that's weird. The person who had more privates won. How do we deal with that? Oh, well. Yeah, you know, you'll be a passenger in that game, really, won't you? Yeah, totally. If you had a group that was willing to play it a couple of times a week or a couple of times every fortnight, you might develop an interesting meta. You'll certainly see some more nuanced, as we're starting to see. You've, I just think you're going to have to be quite fortunate or have experience with a group and know that they're that kind of people. If you stuck this in front of your kind of popcorn crowd at a Wednesday night at a game club that want to play highly produced games and expect things to be developed to the point of being smooth and have no sharp edges and no facets to explore, they won't like this because actually for me, it's almost like academic fun. The fun in this, the interest in this is in exploring those facets and sharp edges. And, and yeah, also in some of that internal analysis you do afterwards i think i'll ask them well i'm going to rephrase the normal question we'd ask ourselves you know normally we ask is this a good game to introduce somebody to particularly in the asian xx space i think we're already way past that decision on this one and i don't think it's a new new i don't new know person friendly i don't know it's weird i think one of our most positive responses to this was nathan who will actually listen to the podcast so might be pleased to hear him hear that he really enjoyed it and it was his first Q-Browse game, um, mm. and I know he's keen to, to step into the XX space with us. So, yeah, maybe I, maybe I misjudged it there. You know, there's a simplicity mm. and a short clock in it that means that you can introduce somebody to it pretty easily. I, pretty see, I think it's about tolerance for opacity. I think that key word you put there earlier was correct, opacity. If somebody is new but doesn't mind learning and having to wade through the, the fog to try and discover new things, they'll be okay. If it's somebody who's got a lot of experience and expects to be the master of everything they see, they're not going to have seen something quite like this before and they're going to be left scrabbling in the dark. Yeah, yeah they'll, be, they'll be floundering around. And if their ego can't take that, then this isn't for it's them. It's going to be a poor experience. Yeah. But but my question, so, so to, to kind of flip that question mm. around a little bit, is it a good game to introduce 18xx players to? My, my view, absolutely. Really? Okay, I... <sighs> Your teach the thing is it, for me right. It only teaches them three things right. It teaches them okay. You have an auction followed by some operations followed by some stock. The way this game implements those particular labels, for want of a better term, those sections is so wildly different to any eighteen XX you'll play. That I think it's if it's a good primer, it's a good primer for getting somebody engaged with the theme and making them realise that train games don't start and stop at Ticket to Ride. Or they're not dull, okay? I don't think it will teach them anything specific about 18xx that's, that you couldn't teach, you know, by passing them a piece of toilet roll with three words written on. Oh, no, but that wasn't my question. My question was more around 
would an 18xx player step out of the 18xx oh. arena to it so so my oh, view on that absolutely i think you know there's enough familiar tropes and traits there that they'll they'll understand they'll see what's going on what it gives them is a 18xx-esque experience it's not it's not 18xx by any mm. shake of the imagination but it has enough similarities that you can come away from it feeling the same kind of way you do but you can do it in 45 minutes rather than okay. three four five six eight hours no i can agree with that take that was one of the things that drew me to it was there i've played other cube rail games specifically lighter ones i'm sorry tom i'm going to decry one of them specifically iberian gauge and i just didn't feel like there was quite enough game in that for me to catch my interest now that's not a fault of the game it's a smaller tighter scoped game but with this i came into it going wow i can relate to all these things there's stuff going on let's see what happens there's definitely enough going on here that as an 18xx player it'll give you something to think about for your first few games yeah, absolutely. So I think you know, in in summary, it's a little bit divisive in some senses. But but wait, I'm not I'm not, not me- greatly. I'm not, I'm not a mega fan on it yet. I still have patience to play it. I I I think people should try it. I mean, my I suspect my response on this is somewhat informed by the fact that we're losing the group, and that's my disclosure. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, but I think if you've got the opportunity to try it and, and you're an 18xx fan, we'd recommend it. Um, yeah, you've got to judge the value for yourself to a certain extent there. Like we said, if you live in the USA, I think that if you're an 18xx fan and you're looking for something to bridge into cube browse, then go for it. If you live in the UK, then for heavens, whether you're importing Spend it... Spend your money wisely, well, yeah, I think. Yeah, whether you're importing it via a back channel and a friend getting it in a suitcase or second chance games be sure you've got a group that likes exploring weird things. It might work for war gamers and people that are expecting exploring the system to be part of the fun of the experience. But if you've got a group that just wants to play something super obvious, for want of a better term... This isn't that game. That's not this game. Cool. So, uh, in summary, uh, you can get in touch with us by emailing us at... Either Craig at thetrainrush.com or Dave at thetrainrush.com. You can get hold of us on Twitter... At The Train Rush. Indeed. Facebook, just search for The Train Rush and you'll find us. On Instagram, then you're going to need to know what underscore is because we're the underscore train underscore rush. And we all... have a BGG guild, um, which number? is 3342. 3342, right. Um, we're out there in the internet occasionally talking to people, but do share thoughts, feedback. Keen yeah. to hear what you guys think of it. Indeed. Hopefully you will appreciate this unfiltered view of the Sioux line.